All right, guys, Adam here with another episode of the Health Mastery Show. And in today's episode, I have on with me pro natural bodybuilder Brian Miner. And in today's episode, what we talk about is how do you progress in the gym, basically. So it can be kind of sometimes confusing when you think about what way should I progress? Should I add reps? Should I add weight? Should I add sets? Or should I do a combination? Or which one should I do first? And we pretty much tease that out in this episode. Now, there's no fast and hard answer when it comes to progress. And most of the time, actually all of the time, if you just stay consistent and progress in any manner whatsoever, then you will make uh, gains in the gym, whether that's strength or size gains. But if you really want to dig into the weeds, which we did on this episode and talk about or listen to what we talk about in terms of what is actually driving hypertrophy, what is making your muscles grow bigger, and what stimulus do we need to provide, then we covered that in this episode. Now, this episode is kind of long. It's about an hour and 20 minutes, and I know some people have mentioned that they're kind of long, but I I do like to do these long-form episodes because I really don't like to surface just the topic. I really like to get into it, but I don't know if this is common sense or not, but for most podcast platforms, at least the ones that I use, you can do 1.5 times speed or even two times speed, which is what I do for every single episode. So I've never actually listened to a podcast in one times episode or one times speed. But if that's what you find the episodes quite long, just do that because I think I'm going to stick to the long form of episodes because I really do like to get a bit deeper and not just touch on the kind of the, the high level stuff, which I kind of feel comes from some other podcasts. But nonetheless, um, let's get into this episode with Brian Miner and talk about everything progress in terms of hypertrophy and strength. So Brian, my man, thank you for joining the podcast today. Yeah, thanks for having me on. So would you mind, Brian, giving us a little bit of insight into how uh, you, I suppose, started your, or got to where you are right now. So you're a coach right now. Um, I, I understand that you're you're big into powerlifting, but you're also a natural pro bodybuilder. Um and you're, you're a coach, would you be able to give me some insight into how you kind of got to where you are both in the professional sense and then as, a, as an athlete, as a powerlifter, as a bodybuilder as well? Yeah, um, love to. I think, I mean, there's a, a long version of this. I'll, I'll keep the, the abbreviated version for what we talk about here. But the long story short, I went to, my undergrad is in construction management um, from university or Colorado State University. Um, and I graduated with my undergrad in 2008 and, um, you know, right when the economy crashed and ended up going back to grad school and getting my master's in health and exercise science. And, you know, from there, um, I worked as like a cardiovascular tech at a hospital before I went back to um, construction management for a few years while I built up my company. Um, you know, and at the time I, I didn't really have expectations to necessarily leave construction, um, cause like I had a great job there. Um, but it was, you know, just the gradual increase in, you know, clientele and, you know, the business just grew organically. And, you know, fortunately after a few years, I was able to, to branch off and do this full time. So it's been interesting cause I've, I've, you know, I, started in one thing went to another went back to the first thing and um you know it's been a very non-linear or call it like an undulating career path 
So, but yeah, so in 2011, um, actually 2010, I did my first bodybuilding show and I, um, you know, like many people was, didn't really know exactly what I was doing or, you know, it was far from optimal. And then, um, you know, came back in 2012, had a much better prep, actually got in, in contest shape and, you know, on the way down for that prep, um, I did my first powerlifting meet in 2011. And so then I competed the following spring um, and got my natural pro card in the NGA. Um, did a couple other, did a pro debut that year in the NGA, actually the following weekend after I won my pro card. Um, and then um, the, yeah, I did one extra show um, like an NPC natural show that season. And then I took five years off and that was when I was working in the, um, construction management industry. And I, um, you know, was just doing meets primarily and focusing on, you know, just an extended off season. I was in no rush to get back on the stage. And 2017, I finally prepped again and had a um, you know, best, best showing to date, you know, placing, placings were actually better in 2012, but, um, I was definitely in a better, better condition, the best bodybuilder, you know, version of myself that I had been to date. So that's, that's the goal, right? So, um, you know, after, since then I, I actually, I, I hadn't competed, um, in powerlifting since then. So the last powerlifting I meet, I did was, um, during my prep for that, um, that season in 2017. So it's been over, you know, two years since I've done a powerlifting meet and, you know, that's something that I'm looking to do, you know, hopefully this year, if, if things keep going well, I mean, it's 2018 was probably one of the less progressive years of training that I've had. Um, and then 2019, it, like I was coming off that prep in 2017 and in 2018, just like was a little bit gassed from prep. Um, didn't really want to compete. I mean, I was training. Um, it just wasn't with much, you know, direction. It was, I feel like I just kind of held ground in terms of development, um, lost a good bit of strength just from not focusing as much on powerlifting and just kind of, you know, was training probably three, four days a week, you know, maintaining muscle, you know, I, was a new dad. So I, you know, have a lot on my plate there. Um, but this year things have, you know, 2019 things started getting a little better and this year things have been off to a great start on the training front. So, um, yeah, here we are. It's, it's been, been a, uh, yeah, fun, fun process. When you competed in, uh, 20 or when you were prepping in 2017, were you working in construction then? No, so I, I oh, okay. was done with uh, construction management uh, in 2015, in July 2015. So it, it had been a couple of years. Yeah. I was doing my own thing by then. I was just thinking, you know, a, a manual job like that and trying to prep just don't seem to go. Yeah, through. I mean, the, <laughs> the the it wasn't construction labor. It oh, was okay. more the uh, project management side in the, you know, yeah, the, yeah, all of the, the paper pushing <laughs> that yeah. goes behind a large construction job. So it was, uh, yeah, fortunately, it, it wasn't too, 
uh, labor intensive. Um, and it's funny, like I, I know, like one of my friends here at Fort Collins, um, I mean, he's a very high level power lifter and he's, you know, he's a plumber and he's, you know, he's on his feet all day lifting stuff. And it's, it's impressive how he can, you know, get in, not only get to the gym, but actually get in there and, you know, perform. It's, you know, it, mm. body is pretty resilient, I think, you know, once you yeah. adapt. So it's, um, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, I actually had a client who was a, a an IFBB pro and uh, and was a plumber as well. And I used to like yeah. wonder how the yeah. hell could he how the, how could he do like those 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 last weeks of prep and yeah. like, doing like I can barely like like walk to work. You yeah. Know, or well, the nice around. thing, yeah, uh, like the one thing it does do for you, it's you know helps keep your yeah your expenditure needle. up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's that's one positive, but it's just. Yeah, there's. I'm sure days you don't even want to get out of bed because um, you know it's just that that uh, I'm sure you've experienced this. Just it's like you feel like you have cinder blocks on your feet, you know. Um, yeah. You're dragging yourself along. Yeah, it's like <laughs> one foot in front of the other. But but Brian, um, w- one of the main reasons why I wanted to have you on today was I actually listened to you speak on a few other podcasts, kind of around this topic, and I don't think you're the only person to to look at how to progress in the gym this specific way but it's very i won't say it's unique but it's definitely a different way so i remember when i first um kind of started training uh, which probably would have been about 11 years ago or so but like really started to kind of look at you know evidence base or at least i found lane norton who was kind of i suppose science hashtag and he was always talking about you know progressing volume and um the reason why his workouts were so long is because he's uh you know a, a pro natural bodybuilder or at least had the, the muscular mass of somebody who's at that level so he needs to be training for that long and I, I, that, that made sense to me you know you gotta always be making progress you gotta um adapt and you know you adapt to new stimulus um or or you've your adaptations of muscle growth are due to those heavier stimuluses or, or greater load and and then i started to think at some point like well you know what happens when you're like you know in your 40s or your 50s like do you just have like four hour long workouts or or five hour long workouts and then and then i suppose more recently well when it's recently about five years ago and at this stage um some meta-analysis from from brad schoenfield and and a few others i can't remember who else was on the paper but they looked at some of the um uh, some of the different rep ranges in terms of uh, purely for hypertrophy and and you know looking at higher rep ranges uh, versus lower rep ranges and kind of um concluded that it doesn't really make a whole lot of difference once we go at least close enough to failure in terms of hypertrophy when you match the number of sets but when we're looking at overall mathematical volume or the amount of poundage so weights or, or reps by sets by actual absolute load and um, the, the ones doing the higher amount of vo- or higher amount of reps or obviously lighter weight actually did a, weight, a lot more mathematical volume when you when you look at it so right. it doesn't really just seem to be like oh well you know if i lifted a total of um you know 1500 kilos for this workout or this week then next week all i have to do is lift 1505 kilos and i've even seen some spreadsheets like um that like coaches have developed in the past or whatever and it actually calculates out your total mathematical volume but right. at least from what we know now that it's it's not necessarily just the mathematical volume 
and we spoke a little bit about uh, about this off uh, off air and even um, I spoke with Mike Isertel before on this and he was saying well you know you could actually do something like um, let's say you're doing like a leg press and then you're doing like leg extensions obviously leg press is a lot higher poundage you lift absolute more weight than like a leg extension right. but if you were to like say switch your leg extensions before your leg press you would actually cut the amount of volume or the amount of weight that you can lift on the leg press drastically there to us uh, reducing overall volume but it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get more stimulus so the question really is you know how do we continuously progress is it like is it just you know when people say well you always need to go progressive overload what what does that even mean and uh, do we need to always be adding weight or adding reps or adding sets to continuously getting uh, bigger yeah there's i mean there's a lot to unpack there um yeah talk for like five minutes straight. <laughs> no no it's it's good i think you know ultimately it comes down to you know the the concept and sort of the the topic that steers this discussion is progressive overload and how we define that um and you know i think we've all probably heard the story of you know milo of croton the um the, the greek wrestler that picked up a baby calf and you know as it grew into a bowl you know each day he picked it up and um you know as it, it got bigger he got stronger and so i mean that's that's how i i was introduced i remember in like my undergrad to um you know or like an undergraduate exercise phys course on just the concept of progressive overload and i think a lot of people they they take that and it's easy to deduce from that the idea of we need to progressively pick up heavier weights you know outside of our um you know homeostatic capabilities or you know just we need we need to push outside homeostasis in order to further um, spur adaptation which is true um but it's it's not necessarily the the act of adding weight um that's or adding reps that's driving the progress um you know when we do that and we train we're placing tension on you know skeletal muscle fibers and that's what's creating the um you know the hypertrophy signaling to occur and as we get stronger um, our and adaptations take place that that ceiling that capacity increases and we have to keep pace with our adaptations by performing more weight by performing additional reps and so think of it as you know there's this capacity to perform and then there's this range below it which is you know an, an adaptive everything from the adaptive threshold and above, like anything that we, you know, it, it's an amount of volume between your minimum effective and your maximum recoverable. Um, and as long as we're in that range, we're, we're placing that stress where we need to place it and in, in having, um, you know, forward progress. And so it's, it's not so much, it, it's both the fact that we're, you know, yes, we do need to increase stress over time in order to continue progressing, but we need to do that in order to keep pace with our rate of adaptation. 
if that makes sense. Um, so, you know, when you, when you mentioned, you know, just gradually doing more and more, it's like tonnage, mathematical volume isn't really, I mean, that, that doesn't really speak to the amount of tension on the, the skeletal muscle level. Like when you look at, you know, increasing motor unit recruitment, you know, with, as we approach failure or with heavier loads, um, you know, the, we need to have sets that are sufficiently difficult in order to have an adaptive effect from them. Um, yeah, so so basically, I think I might have mentioned this on a previous podcast, but and um, the way that I look at it is, you, you don't want to go so heavy that it's you're not you don't have enough uh, basically time under tension. So like one rep, so even there's a ton of tension there, but it's not perhaps enough time under tension. So uh, maybe above that five rep range, but again, you don't want to have so light that um you you don't have enough magnitude of load. I think Eric Helms. I often talks about this um in terms of um kind of giving a good example is like we're always under we're always under tension in terms of gravity right. but we're not huge so obviously there's a there's a point where there's a the magnitude is just too light and right and if if you look at like the size principle mm. and you know we recruit more muscle fiber you know or increase motor unit recruitment based off of force demands and so when you have a heavy load, you know, we need to call into action more skeletal muscle um, to, to meet that force demand. And at the same time, as we fatigue, then we have to increase motor unit recruitment to kind of pick up the, the slack and, um, you know, those, those lower threshold motor units start to fatigue and we have to... Um, you know, recruit higher threshold motor units to, to continue to meet that force demand. And so, um, you know, that, that's like the, one of the physiological sort of underpinnings of that concept is, um, you know, we're, we are under tension, you know, with gravity, but it's all stuff that our low threshold fibers are, are able to, you know, take care of and, and address. It's not, we, we don't really ever recruit high threshold stuff unless we are, um, you know, taking a set closer to failure or, you know, a fatiguing set, um, or a heavy set or like a, um, you know, high amounts generating high amounts of power and, you know, like plyometrics will increase motor unit recruitment. Um, but you're not placing a lot of tension on those high threshold fibers necessarily. Um, it's just more that they they need to be called into action to produce force at that rate. Um, so I, all of that has, you know, I think that explains some of why, you know, there needs to be a certain amount of demand in place. It's, it's because of the size principle. Um, yeah, but, so essentially, yeah. you, you, like you can't go into if you can, if you can curl um, or you can bench press like a hundred kilos for ten reps. If you go in and just do uh, thirty, or you do like thirty kilos or forty kilos, and just do uh, four reps, like you're not going to be able to recruit, um, you know, all your muscle fibers because 
the 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 proximity to failure is not Mm -hmm. it's just not close enough exactly and it's like you've probably heard the example of yeah like three sets of 10 with 100 kilos versus 10 sets of three like mathematically that's the same amount of volume but the 10 sets of three you're probably not going to be you know recruiting much high threshold motor units at all because you're just so short of failure and so that that difficulty um you know, whether it via you know, fatigue and proximity to failure or just via heavy loads to begin with, you know, that, that difficulty in demand is required to, um, to have a you know, significant hypertrophic stimulus from an exercise. Yeah. I guess you could compare it to, like, say, if you're, like, um, you know, walking a one mile, like, just walking a distance, and your goal was to get like as fast as humanly possible, like you're a sprinter. You could walk that one mile, um, or else you could do like you know ten interval bursts of sprints and then slow down and stop. And you know it's the same distance, but exactly. one's gonna have a, a higher impact on your overall um y- your speed, uh, even mm-hmm. though you're both covering. So it's not yeah, it's not it's not just uh, yeah you gotta look at you gotta look at it as a like a multifaceted approach with not just one parameter that affects it mm-hmm. um and i think that's probably where people simplify too much where it's just oh all all that's important is is mathematical volume um mm-hmm. so if i just achieve that by any means because then you could you could really take that a black white and then say well what if i did you know uh, 10 sets of uh one rep uh, but like extremely heavy or or else I just did, you know, did the same weight or, or did very lightweight, but did like, you know, 50 rep sets that are nowhere near failure. Um, you know, you could, you could, it's pretty easy. You just, all you have to do is be, uh, have some basic knowledge of maths to just, you know, make different uh, equations to yeah. equal the same overall well, number. But, and there, there's really, I mean, if you think about it, I guess, critically, and you think, you know, why why would our body respond based off of mathematical volume? Like that's, it's like a percentage, um, like one RM, you know, programming with different percents, one RM. It's not the percentage that's inherently causing the adaptation. It's the, the imposed stress that, you know, comes with that percentage, the stress that imposes, you know, on a biological system. Um, and so when you when you think of it that way, it's like why why would yeah why would mathematical volume if anything it's it's just a very rough proxy for stress, um, and it has its limitations just like just like anything. Um, but I think yeah, if you're looking at it critically, it's um, it it never really made much sense to begin with, <laughs> yeah. but it does it does have some merit for. Like if you're looking at, you know, just overall total work um, and, you know, you're comparing the same lift, you know, across a, a mesocycle and you're, you're not having these crazy, you know, fluctuations in where you're at in that spectrum. You're not comparing three by 10 or 10 by three. I mean, you're you have just a regular, you know, say you go from 10 reps down to, you know, three by 10 three by eight, three by six. So you have like a, you know, increasing, like a linear, um, increase in load across the block. It's like in that regard, tonnage is going to tell you, I mean, yes, you're performing less volume as you go, 
but it's uh, when it comes to hypertrophy, number of sets is you know becoming more and more clear that that's probably the best way to to think about um, volume quantification for for hypertrophy yeah. specifically. Yeah, I, I guess it gives you kind of a, a quick snapshot of just the overall amount of work that you're doing if if you do want to kind of compare. Yeah. Um. A, you know one mesocycle to another mesocycle mm-hmm. i suppose it, it wouldn't be dissimilar to like the very very basic example i gave at the sprinting like if you were doing sprints every you know 30 seconds and you you ran a mile and then like in six months time you did the same sprints and you wanted to see how much extra work you're doing and then you measure the distance and you're doing two miles at least yeah. you know that you're doing more work <laughs> but yeah exactly. it's not that useful um other to know that I'm, I'm actually doing more work so yeah maybe it'll perhaps explain things like perhaps recovery or nutrition or mm-hmm. or you know just the the overall kind of fitness fatigue model so so if we just look at then i, I suppose the number of sets that we're doing and with, with the caveat that you're not taking it too extreme where you're you're doing like you know one reps one rep or one rep sets or two rep sets or or 100 rep sets how do we then look at progress um to induce hypertrophy so um i know initially when you're like a beginner pretty much anything is going to work and most of the time what beginners typically do is they'll just add more weight to the bar and there's nothing Mm -hmm. wrong with that but that obviously starts to slow down like within six months to the year and then Often people, you know, they can for a couple of years probably if they're consistent, they can crank out a few more reps, um, yeah, and even you know into into quite an advanced training age that can happen, and um, but but then the question comes, well, if if it's sets, that's the most important thing. Then do I really need to be even trying to increase the load on the bar or even the number of reps? Can I not just add sets forever? Yeah, um, I mean, this is a topic of of debate um i mean eventually if you are adapting then eventually each set is gonna be below that adaptive threshold so if you're if you're just adding sets to progress and not worrying about adding reps or adding load then eventually like the the three sets of 10 that you did originally you know say originally they were an average of three reps in reserve you know, eventually those could be six, seven, eight reps in reserve and not really be contributing much stimulus in isolation. And you would be better off performing more reps per set or increasing the load in order to actually get a stimulus from each set. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I got you. It's like the way I kind of looked at it was uh, if those if if those reps, if those initial sets that you were doing like didn't change whatsoever in terms of and not only the reps, the weight, but the the intensity, like the reps in reserve. But I think that that's probably too simplistic. And that's the way that people, when they do try to compare it to, like, what's better, increasing reps or increasing sets? Well, is sets better? And they don't think uh, that often we can't control, uh, you know, how easy a set is getting for us. So if I'm doing three sets of 10 on, let's just say, the bench press for 100 kilos and I'm doing it for eight months, um, it, it's not, if I just consistently do it and eat well and train, I can't really control how easy that that's going to get for me. I mean, it, like it will eventually over time 
the, like let's say I had one reps in reserve, one once uh, rep short of failure for all those three sets. In, in eight months' time, I might be four reps short of failure mm-hmm. or, or less, and it, I can't really control that in terms of like I can't stop myself from getting stronger or that that set's becoming easier. And I think that that's perhaps what some people, when they're comparing a progression, um, you know, progression models or like whether I should do rep increased reps or increased weight or you know increase sets they they forget that often you know the the sets that you are doing or the weight that you're currently doing for the amount of reps even if you don't change that weight or the reps you just stick with it they will get easier over time unless you're really overtraining and you can't really control that yeah um i mean they'll get easier over time until each set is so easy that you're not imposing an adaptive stimulus in which case then you would just you would still plateau it wouldn't just get easier forever um like eventually you would you know yeah. you couldn't you do a set of getting, 10 and have 10 set, 10 reps in reserve yeah <laughs> like that eventually that each set in isolation is going to be below that you know adaptive threshold and you're, you're not go. i mean an additional rep in reserve in this case is a positive adaptation. Like that's, yep. that's the, you know, the tool you're using to assess that you're progressing. But, um, you know, if each set is, is below that threshold, you're not going to continue to see that. So, you know, within like the same number of sets over time, you know, you would be increasing load if you're keeping reps the same or, you know, ideally yeah. in practice, it's like using a range and, you know, increasing reps um, and, you know, using some type of a double progression strategy, I think, um, because you're not going to be able to add load every single week. Yeah. Um, so. so, so for example, when we say like the effective, um, you know, the effective range of intensity, you, you would agree with me saying that it's, it's all, all the way from like failure, obviously training, uh, taking a set to failure down to say maybe five reps in reserve probably at least that's what the the literature shows right now i don't usually train that far away from failure but probably there you probably that's probably an effective set right i think i think that's in practice a good recommendation yes i think yeah. there's there's been um i mean it's i i'm i don't think there's a hard cutoff where you know anything below five reps in reserve is not contributing any to growth. Um, like, I don't think that's the case, but I think the, you know, eventually that's the case. I don't know if it's at five, but I think it's, mm. it's not like an on off switch. It's, it's a scaled, you know, is each, each rep you perform, um, you know, the, the stimulus per rep is, is increasing. And then it, it sees like a, um, you know, once you're getting, full motor unit recruitment, which, you know, for most muscle groups is, you know, 80 to 90% um, of, of one RM or for most exercises. And granted, you have to then look at individual muscle groups um, within those exercises. But let's say, and I, I would have to look at this study again, but let's say like a squat at 80% one RM, you know, every rep with 80% and on is, you know, from the first rep on is going to be recruiting all your motor units in 
you know, for that muscle. Um, you know, you may be able to perform, you know, depending on the person, anywhere from, you know, six to 12 reps with 80% of your max, you know, so you're, you can still be getting full motor unit recruitment and be well shy of, you know, five or with much more than five reps in reserve, depending on the exercise and muscle group. So, um, so, but, but I do think in practice, you know, yeah, I think most, uh, you know, most people are, are somewhere in that, you know, one to, to four reps in reserve most of the time anyway. So I think it's, it's kind of splitting hairs arguing where the, the, mm. you know, threshold is when you're likely above it anyway. Yeah. And if you're so far away from, if we can recruit all the muscle fibers, um, being so far away from failure, let's say you could get 10 reps with your 80 percent of your one rep max on a squat why would we ever go and try and get close to failure on that like would, would it not be beneficial to be stopping five or four reps short of failure all the time simply just due to the fatigue that you know you know goes linearly upwards um as the closer we get to failure well here's another thing to consider um you know, as you go, rep velocity slows down. So your the time, like the, the per rep stimulus still increases, like the stimulus per rep still increases as you approach failure. So it's not like all reps with full motor unit recruitment, all of them are equal. Like there's still seems to be a benefit from, um, you know, pushing a little bit past just the threshold of full motor unit recruitment. Um, and then you have to look at and this, this is going to, this would get more in the weeds than I think is worth for this. But the, the idea of um, like contraction speeds and uh, you know, you, you want to be con the more, you know, the slower the contraction speed, the, the more, um, cross bridging that's going to be occurring and the more tension you know, on the fiber level um, with those slower velocities that come with fatigue. So I think, you know, there's that, there's that sweet spot where, you know, you're, you're taking advantage of, um, you know, pushing to where the stimulus is appreciable, but also, um, you know, managing fatigue set to set like i think if you're leaving four reps in reserve on a set of squats like i don't really think you're going to be burying yourself as opposed to leaving you know six or seven like it, you're still managing fatigue pretty well at that point um so i i think yeah i think the the key distinction there is that full motor unit recruitment isn't necessarily the only part of the picture um you know, it's full motor unit recruitment in conjunction with, um, you know, rep velocity that you know, starts to increase the stimulus as you, or a decrease in rep velocity, um, increase the stimulus on a per rep basis, at least gotcha. theoretically. Yeah. So, so to kind of make a very simple example, um, if I was doing, if I had a training plan that had just three sets of 10 and of like again let's just say 100 kilos or two 220 pounds and i was training and all my um all those sets were 
say two reps short of failure and I'm I'm young enough I'm like in my 20s and I want to progress and get bigger over my whole training career and do I need to increase the like how do I improve my or increase my my volume or progress over time is it is it true weight or is it true reps or is it true sets do you tr- do you think that it's better to tr- to try one form of progression first and exhaust that and then uh, look to another or uh, do you do all three in unison i know that we mentioned i i said we talked a little bit about mike isertel i know that he, the way he likes to do it is to pretty much push all three up in each mesocycle before kind of taking a deload and then do, repeating um what do you think is actually driving the adaptations here I mean, I think what's driving the adaptations is, you know, overall mechanical tension. And I don't think, um, you know, j- just because volume is more correlated with hypertrophy than, than load, like the, the meta-analyses that we have available looking at volume looks at, you know, volume, you know, within some range across like the, the total volume across a mesocycle, yeah. you know, when, just, but it's just not really ch- looking at volume progression week to week. So like just yeah. because volume's more correlated doesn't mean that that should be like yeah. number of sets should be the primary variable that you're manipulating. Yeah. And just before you, you go on, I just want to mention that when you're, when you're talking about volume, cause this kind of confused me a couple of years ago when people, they, they use volume um, interchangeably, but when you're talking about volume, you don't mean overall mathematical volume, you mean volume yeah, I mean by number, number of sets. sets. Yeah, yep. 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 that's a so, good clarification. So that's, that is, uh, that's most closely uh, related to hypertrophy, but it's not uh, that important. Is that what you're saying? No, I'm saying it's volume is important. I'm just saying the, the meta-analyses that we have looking at volume and it's you know, association with hypertrophy that show a strong correlation. It, it's looking at total volume, you know, across the study duration. Um, it's not looking at volume increases on a week to week basis. So it, it's almost. Gotcha. You know, I mean, it's you not know what like I'm saying. It, like it's, it's yeah. showing that association. Yes, it is over time more associated and a stronger predictor for hypertrophy but that doesn't automatically mean volume should be the primary variable that's yep. adjusted on a week-to-week basis. Yeah, you mean that we can't extrapolate that to like um, a 20-year period and say that, well, because volume or number of sets was the most closely associated with hypertrophy, it means that now at the age of 20, 21 or whatever age somebody is, by the time they're at, you know 45, they're going to be needed to doing a seven times the amount of sets or or 25 times the amount of sets yeah exactly um and also it's as you adapt and get stronger you're like there's opportunity within each existing set to to increase the stimulus so it's like why not capitalize on that before you consider adding you know, significant number of sets, because if you're progressing, like progression is reassurance that overload is likely occurring anyway. You know, if, if we're using performance as a proxy for hypertrophy, um, you know, over time, you know, across a mesocycle, if you're getting stronger with 
an existing amount of volume without you know escalating your volume across the block if you're continuing to add additional reps um you know at, at the same rpe with the same load and you're um you know increasing rep strength or you know adding load that's that's telling you that there's positive adaptations occurring with the existing volume um and that you you don't need to add volume on a week-to-week basis and and i don't think the argument is necessarily that you you need to but that um you know the the proponents of of you know adding sets every week you know i think it's the argument that that's more optimal um and and i would i would argue again i think that's i don't agree with that necessarily i and i think one of the you know the idea of mev like the minimum effective volume and then mrv like the there's that sweet spot which i think they they term like maximum adaptive volume and and we know looking at you know there's there's research that shows you know more volume isn't better you know there's there's definitely a sweet spot there and so even though volumes correlated with you know higher volumes are correlated with more hypertrophy compared to lower volumes it doesn't mean that the highest volumes are the best and we see that in research where it shows like middle ground um you know ranges outperform the low and the high end volume prescriptions so there there seems to be like an inverted u relationship with with volume and hypertrophy and you know the that's essentially in the middle you, you start a mesocycle and conceptually that's like in the middle of your mev and mrv you follow me so far yep okay so if if that number of sets let's say it's 15 sets for a given body part if that number of sets is where you're getting the highest return on investment then you know i would argue you could spend the majority of your time in that range without increasing sets further or starting below that and increasing sets further because going from mev like going from mev to mrv is is sort of based off the assumption that mev is is increasing to a degree that necessitates the need for an additional set to maintain the optimal stimulus does that make sense yeah so um do you think that then if you find let's say you know if we're going to go off basically that whatever the the research between like 10 and 20 sets or something so if you find a number of sets per body part per week let's say it's 12 sets or something like that for chest and and you're you're getting reps or either increasing weight on the same lifts and the intensity meaning that it's it's the the reps the, the lifts aren't actually getting harder they're that you're still like too shy of failure three shy of failure mm-hmm that you should just basically milk that for as long as you possibly can. I I don't see why not. Um, Because you know you're achieving an overload stimulus there. We know there's an inverted U relationship and it's possible to do too much. And so if you know you're getting progress, then, you know, say you're getting progress at the beginning of the mesocycle Mm. at MEV, if if you're starting at MEV, 
there's no way to really guarantee that you're going to be getting progress at the end, you know, at MRV. And that's the thing. Like if you look at, think of an inverted U relationship, like plotted on an X, Y axis and MR, MRV would be where it crosses back over the X axis on that yeah. right side. So, but we know that that's not where, you know, looking at the curve by itself, if that's where it's crossing the X axis, then like by definition, yeah, you're recovering, but that's not what's optimal. Like what's optimal is still to the left of that somewhere. And I, I believe that the only reason you would need to push up to, to MRV is based off the assumption that MEV would be increasing and shifting that, that optimal range you know, significantly to the right as you progress across a block until it's so far to the right where it actually is at MRV. Yeah. Um, so ha- and and so- I'm not convinced that's the case. Yeah. So, so how would you even know that? Uh, let's say, I guess, if how do you even know or start to begin to to question whether your effective um you know your effective volume or the number of sets that you're doing is is no longer effective because um you've adapted to it or you need to add in more sets it, does that mean that you've you've now either slowed down your your ability to add weight to that lift or the number of reps and and will an additional set or two uh, will that then kind of kick start that again or is it is it is it getting um or are you adding in more tension um just through adding in more sets effectively so so you're basically saying at what point do you know you've plateaued with the existing volume and you need to add more? Yep. So I, I, it's a, it's an impossible question to answer definitively. Um, but I would say, you know, the argument could be made, like if you start and you're, say you add, you know, this is just to illustrate this concept. Say you add three reps in week one, two reps in week two, one rep in week three, and then in week four, you don't add any. Is that because you're adapting or your adaptation rate is slowing? Or could that also be simply due to the fact that residual fatigue is accumulating, masking your preparedness? And if it's fatigue related, then adding an additional set is probably the worst thing you could do (laughs) because i mean that's like the a large bolus of stress there so there's no way to know that for sure and i think at some point we have that exact uh that that exact situation today so like um i'm I'm towards the end of my current blocked mesocycle and i I doing six sets per per exercise i'm only doing like two per per day um Mm. but i know that um my weight some of the 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 reps are on like my consistency of maintaining higher reps is dropping throughout the sets and it's not i don't think well maybe next week we're gonna add seven sets it's, it's definitely the fatigue element of it yeah exactly. um, because i'm not used to lifting so much but um so, sorry what were you going to say about then um if that's not the case how would you then oh well if, it, if it's if it's not the case like if it's i mean there's no way to know i guess if you feel really fresh in that fourth week and you're like, I feel fully recovered and my performance is tanking. I, I suppose that's that could be an indication. But I, I don't really see that, you know, as a coach, I don't really see that play out like that in re, 
reality um, or in practice, especially for myself. Like if I see, um, you know, like you said, if I see performance or rep progression trending down across a block, usually as soon as I deload and I see an increase the following week, I know then that it was, um, you know, fatigue related. And I guess that's a good way to go about it. It's like if you run into that situation, try taking a deload. And if you're, you know, one to two weeks after that, your performance isn't, you know, back to, um, you know, if you're, if you're not progressing again, then, I mean, it could be a sign that you need more volume. But if, if you deload and all of a sudden the next week, you know, say you run a deload and then you have like the first week of the next block or an intro week or whatever, and all of a sudden you add, you know, two reps to, you know, where you had zero the past week, then that's probably a good indication it was fatigue related. Mm. Um, so if, if it's not fatigue related, say if somebody's doing like quite low volume, like mm-hmm. they're only doing 10 sets or eight sets per week for a muscle group, and it would be hard uh, to speculate that they're that they're like f- fatigued or it's residual fatigue. So if they were plateauing at that stage, uh, would the addition of an extra set actually then increase performance once again um like is it that extra amount of volume that kind of like i said kickstart i know that's kind of not like not necessarily the correct term but kickstarts progress again yeah it's it's an additional stimulus um you know added to the equation which yeah you could be below your adaptive threshold and adding that additional set could push you into that you know, adaptive range. And I think that's, that's a big key here is, um, you know, there, there is an, a range for adaptation. Um, and this is something I, I listened to a podcast, uh, stronger by science podcast with, um, Greg Knuckles and Eric Trexler the other day. And one of my buddies had, had messaged me and said, uh, one of the people had wrote in and asked a question about like my, their thoughts on how, I approached progressive overload and, um, and for, <laughs> I, I want to make it clear too. like Greg pointed out a good point and I'm, I'm glad he did. Like there's, I think people, they, th- this isn't my original idea. You know, the fact that mm. progress is an adaptive outcome rather than like the, the requirement. Um, and it, it, in a sense, it's, it's a little bit of both, but, it's not the you know beat or lo- beat the logbook or don't progress mentality that a lot of people have, but you know this is something um, you know Greg had mentioned he had discussed in the past, um, and so I, I didn't want people to think this is something I created. Um, it's more just an, an observation that you know I've I've made over time and you know things that I've picked up on over time, looking at it myself and I think a number of other people have as well. Um, but one thing that he had mentioned that um, I really liked his take on it was, you know, he, he had said he doesn't really like the term progressive overload, but more um, the term, you know, sub-adaptive, adaptive, and maladaptive stimulus. And so, and, and there's, you know, a range for all of those, or, you know, there's thresholds for, for all of those where, you know, you could be underperforming below MEV and have it be, you know, a subadaptive stimulus. But then, you know, an adaptive stimulus, there's like there's a range there. And that's what's kind of 
you know, the, the, the sheer existence of, you know, MEV to MRV at any given point of time, you know, knowing there is a range there. I mean, that the acknowledgement of those two thresholds or landmarks, you know, tells us that at least to me indirectly hints that there's not like this finite window that needs to be maintained across the mesocycle like the optimal isn't this small range that increases towards mrv across the block it's you know any given point of time like i i think you could have a a block that goes in potentially goes in reverse order where say you start um you know say you have an intro week and you work your way up to um or actually let's say you have a block where Say it's six weeks long and the first two weeks you work up to, um, you know, the top of your, which you believe is your optimal volume range. And then after that, you actually start tapering volume away. And this is something that I I do with a lot of like power lifters that I work with in some of their volume blocks is their peak volume will actually be about two weeks in and then their their volume starts to taper off as intensity sees a more assertive increase in the second half of the block. But just because volume's tapering off and say, you know, the the total tension per set or the we'll say the overall hypertrophy stimulus may be going down across the set, it's still conceptually above MEV and they they're still making progress even though they're doing less you know, on a week to week basis in the second half of the block. Does that make sense? So is, is no, yeah. as long as you're anywhere in that range at any given time, you're, you're providing an adaptive stimulus. And I, I like how Greg termed that because, um, or not necessarily the range, but the, you know, categorized a stimulus is, you know, mal or subadaptive, adaptive and maladaptive. And that, that sh- sort of shows, um, you know, there, there's a spectrum um, and progressive overload is simply or overload is simply the adaptive part of that. Mm. Um, so, so when you work so, with, with people, why do you actually increase their, their volume through number of sets if if you could simply just, like I said before, milk the, the increases in, in reps or increases um in sets or sorry increase in in weight or increase in number of reps why would you then add in number of sets honestly i i don't really use that very often um unless i'm going from well first off like the m well mav or we'll say just the optimal range of volume yep like that is influenced by a lot more than what you did the previous week, you know, that or the previous microcycle. I mean, that has significant, and I would say, you know, stronger, it's more strongly influenced by acute variables like sleep, nutrition, um, you know, stress, things like that are going to impact where, you know, optimal falls, you know, the, the nature of the training itself. Um, so, you know, there, the, when I think of optimal, like the research we have available, 
like a rough sort of you know foolproof takeaway um well, i shouldn't say foolproof but you know we know that sets per body part somewhere between 10 and 20 for most people seems to be kind of the sweet spot um there's going to be exceptions to that but you know sets per week somewhere between 10 and 20. so let's just we'll say anywhere from like 13 to 17 we'll say is you know where they like to hang out most of the time i may have somebody like run a two-week like ramp up phase to what i would consider or i hypothesize is their optimal amount and then i might just keep it there until we deload and so when i'm increasing volume across a like when i do increase volume in a block it's usually on my way up to what i suspect is their mav or their optimal amount um rather than going from you know going past that or going all the way to mrv because i don't i don't think there's much benefit in you know this is my opinion of course and you know i have a tremendous amount of respect for um mike and you know the information that he's brought forward um but that is one thing i i question is um you know, the, the benefit of, of pushing all the way up to MRV um, rather than staying a little bit more in in the middle. Um, and I think a, a lot of it boils down to, you know, how quickly does that adaptive threshold or MEV progress across a block? And mm. I, in those cases, I think you have to turn to, to performance and use that as a diagnostic tool to assess if you're achieving an overload stimulus or not um and eventually you have to just kind of like one thing i've noticed working with people is and i'm sure you know hundreds of coaches have noticed this is you know number of sets like it increases a little across a training career but i mean i know personally like i you know, I would consider myself at this point like an advanced trainee. Um, and there there were times in my early career where I was doing more volume than I'm doing now, but I'm still making progress now. Um, so it's it's not like the, the idea that, you know, training stress needs to in or volume needs to increase over time. I, I don't really like that statement because... You know, one, it depends how you're quantifying volume, but even if it's number of sets, I don't think that's to the degree that, that most people think. And when we, it's, it's easy to expect that to be an astronomical number when you, you know, are looking at models that are progressing it on a week to week basis. Now I know, I mean, deloading is, is the way around a lot of this, because once you deload, you're then able to, uh, you know, I, I know like Dr. Mike's model, it's not like he picks up where he left off and then start, you know, continues to ramp mm-hmm. it back up. It's like you, you cycle the volume, um, you know, and you start back at your MEV the next block. Um, so it's, I mean, that's my interpretation and understanding of it. So, yeah. and that, that makes sense. Like there's no reason to expect, like you have to manage the fatigue aspect of it as well. Um, and by, you know, 
periodizing your training or just, you know, implementing some form of fatigue management, that that's going to work around a lot of the, the idea of needing to continuously add volume over time. And it, in the end, I think a lot of people just forget to, to look at their existing training and see if it's working. And if it's working, it's like, do you really need to increase volume? Probably not. Yeah. Um, So so I guess it's kind of like, um, like when you talked about the, the MEV to maximum or sorry, the maximum adaptive volume or, uh, you know, that's like the the term used or or the optimal volume and then trying to push that up towards your maximum recoverable volume. It's kind of like saying, well, once you go over 60 miles an hour, uh, you're not going to get any additional benefit, but you, for some reason, just decide to put your foot onto the, the onto the gas and just burn yourself out. You you might get some additional benefit, but you're definitely going to get a whole lot more fatigue or burnout. And that's yeah. kind of it's kind of what I'm I'm actually feeling personally. Um, I'd never really try to push up my my volume by sets. It, usually because I actually didn't really enjoy training uh, throughout my training career. Um, like training much longer than an hour or or ninety minutes and. And I just didn't want to be in the gym, so I never really added more than say four sets per per say some muscle group. I mean per per exercise, and you know maybe you know no more than really like sixteen sets per per week. But this this last um, last few months after my last contest prep, I I decided to just you know give it a go, and I'm really feeling like you know really wrecked, like beat up at the end of every mesocycle, where it's mm-hmm. like I'm am I really getting any like additional benefits from this i don't know like i could barely walk today from my quads being so sore <laughs> yeah. like just from from I, I think i did like six sets of squats followed by six sets of hack squats on one day and i'm like oh i can't walk you know yeah it's like is this really necessary and then when i think about it from a very anecdotal point of view like uh, the last time i competed was 2016 and then the la- and then had a three-year break and then competed in 2019 and I was I was lighter in 2019 but that's because I got leaner but also when I think about my training over that three-year period I didn't get stronger in any lifts now granted I wasn't really trying to get stronger in most lifts but even within you know the higher rep ranges I didn't really necessarily get that much stronger in anything if, if at all I didn't um, add any extra volume but I definitely had more muscle and then I, if I even kind of look at that from a a, a larger time frame uh, my coach jeff albert uh, he, he's been on the podcast before he started training when he was like 17 and he was talking about his volume and and now he's 48 he'd be 49 soon and his i don't think his volume or even his strength so, is that much higher so i'm trying to think what, what's going on there well i think jeff is a great example of somebody who has gone from you know a novice to an elite level bodybuilder and you don't see, and he's still progressing and he's not handling, you know, he's, I think there's some exercise or some muscle groups that are probably getting, you know, 10 or less sets per week. I mean, it could be mistaken, but he's, he's kind of known as the, the low volume guy. And the fact is, is I think he's a good case study of somebody who like the quality of his volume is, is high you know he's uh you know prioritizes technique and you know he he is prog- like he's not a power lifter but he is getting stronger in terms of you know his accessories and rep progression um 
And I mean, that's going to be what's most correlated with hypertrophy anyway, rather than like an increase in one RM mm. um, is, you know, just, oh, you're, the, the volume that you're doing is with higher, you know, higher loads over time. And I think that's, um, you know, he's doing that. And um, yeah, I, I don't think the number of sets changes much like your 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 optimal volume range you know on an average day from beginner to advanced you know i i I don't think that's you know maybe one or two extra sets i don't think it's um i mean this is me just you know kind of just giving a random number but i i've just i've noticed that plenty of advanced athletes aren't training with any more volume than they were in their intermediate stages in terms of number of sets, but they're stronger. The stimulus per set is still higher because they're handling more load. Yeah. So Um, you you basically think that uh, you don't necessarily need to be always increasing your volume over your career, but you, you like, if you, if you don't increase your volume or you don't increase the, the weight that you're lifting or the reps throughout your career, then you won't make progress. Or do you think that's, that, would that be, um, I think too you'll, simplistic? I think you'll maintain. Okay. I think if you're, you know, the, the thing is, is in order to, to continue to progress, you do have to have an, like an overload stimulus is not synonymous with doing more than you did the last session. An overload stimulus is just getting to, um, you know, an adaptive threshold within that session. And, you know, what you did, you know, that's, that is not predicated on what you did the prior session, but over time you do need to like, as you adapt and you have a increased ceiling for performance and an increased capacity, you need to like that, that line, that adaptive threshold is, is increasing you know, and you have to keep pace with that by doing additional weight or doing additional reps. Um, so it, you know, doing that stuff is necessary in order to maintain forward progress over time, but it's not on a session to session basis. It's, I got it, you. Can, yep. it can be over, you know, a longer yep. period of time. So, so if on like if you are stalled per se, which most people think for a number of weeks, maybe uh, at a certain rep range and on also a certain weight, um, it may not necessarily mean you're not making you're not making you may you may not on paper be making progress, but you're still getting above that uh, effective threshold to mm-hmm. be to be stimulating um, you know muscle protein synthesis and and ultimately it's not always about like I got to beat the logbook because if you get into that mindset, it's like uh, you can kind of get get ahead of yourself and form can break down, etc. Yep, and you see that all the time. Like you yep. see people who. You know, in a quest for beating the logbook or, you know, there's significant form breakdown. Um, and it's almost as if the, you know, they have the mentality. It's like, as soon as I hit this rep, my body is going to know and register like, hey, this is one more rep than we did last week. Let's go ahead and grow now. You know, it's mm. just, it's not how it works. Um, that's what, that's what Arnold said, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> it's the last two reps. Yeah. That can. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, when it comes to 
to progressive overload. Um, like I, I had mentioned Greg's way of thinking of it. I, I like that a lot. Um, but, you know, I did a, a presentation on um, overload at the JPS um, seminar in Australia this summer. And the way I, I defined it there um, was like overload is achieving a sufficient stimulus to spur some positive adaptation. Progressive overload is the observation of adding load to the bar is a result of those adaptations. You know, it's it's the observation of keeping pace with your rate of adaptations. So um, we should be those... trying to, to, to chase overload um, and then on a longer scale, progressive overload. Yep, exactly. Yep. That's, what, that's one way to think of it. Because eventually you are going to need to do something in order to, otherwise you're going to fall below that adaptive you know, mm. target each session. Um, yeah, gotcha. So, and and then f one final question for you, uh, uh, Brian, and that is, I know that people when they're, let's say they are doing some form of training where w within the mesocycle or from mesocycle to mesocycle, they're they're adding in uh, volume by adding in more sets. Um, there's almost often a fear where it's like, well. I can't go back now like you know I've crossed this threshold of now my body is adapted to this um new amount of volume so really all I could do is add more volume but you uh, can you talk a little bit about uh you know um resynthesization to volume and, and how that works Yeah I mean I think it's you know I I think it's it's as much as resensitization is it is just there's a range there to begin with I think a lot of people, it, the, the reality is, is that, no, you have not adapted to that much volume and have to, like, resensitize in order to, um, you know, be able to make use of lower volumes. My argument, since, you know, it, that, that would be the case if MEV was pushing the curve to the right throughout the yep. block. But since I think, you know, MEV does increase a little you know, because you are having to, you know, add additional reps, additional load, you know, to keep pace with your rate of adaptations. So since MEV is still likely behind what you're doing, I think it's just an irrational fear that people have <laughs> more than anything. Um, and I think when it comes to resensitization, it's, it's more, you know, just deloading, dropping residual fatigue and having a greater preparedness and ability to, um, you know, achieve an overload stimulus with, you know, lower amounts of volume. But in reality, I think it's, it's probably a little bit of a combination of, of both. Like, yeah, I think you're, once you bring volume down, there probably is some, you know, resensitization in terms of, you know, anabolic pathways to, a given you know a lower given amount of volume but um i think my, my primary argument is that you would be misled if you thought that you know there's no going back once you've achieved this amount you know once you've performed this amount of volume you can't go back and like the same the same concept you see this in contest prep too um where someone is like i i want to save the cardio until i need it you know, or like, I want to, I, wanna, I don't want to cut calories 
too soon because then when I plateau, I won't have anywhere to go. And it's like, well, you would have ended up in this position no matter what. You know, like you're like there are some adaptive mechanisms. There's certainly you know metabolic adaptation is is a real thing, but there's still there's still a range there of effective intakes and effective amounts of you know cardio that you can do. It's like it's not like once you start doing half an hour of cardio a day, you can no longer lose fat by doing anything less than that you know it could just be that the deficit is now a little bit smaller or maybe i just i need to eat a little bit less if i'm going to scale back it's just managing the energy balance from from different mm, yeah. sides of the equation or you know through activity or diet so yeah. um so it's somewhat of a related variable but um you know so, to your, so to your point your... go ahead yeah. So does your does your um a minute your adaptive volume um or at least that range of adaptive volume does that not increase then as you increase that volume? So um you know the lower end of that will actually be pushed to the right or pushed upwards per se. So that um now that you've if you've lowered your volume, you, you may not necessarily be able to lower it um at as low as it was before. Um you know that's the kind of that, yeah. that's the kind of critical thinking part of it. Yeah, well, I I guess that's what I'm saying is is it Yeah, you couldn't go back to what you started the block with in terms of sets and reps and expect the same amount of progress from that. But that's because your adaptations are would be allowing you to do this is hard more to explain verbally. Sets or yeah. More weight. yeah. So yeah, so like your existing yeah, sets you would be underperforming below your capacity mm-hmm. below yeah. that threshold but i don't think yeah i think the the, like the there's no going back now once i add a set i mean no there is you can go back probably at any point you like um to a a reasonable degree (laughs) and i guess like the the question becomes what you know physiologically what would have to be occurring for you to need to increase like you know what what is causing mev to have to increase that much to justify needing additional sets to maintain, you know, that adaptive threshold. And, you know, the, the answer to that when it comes to hypertrophy is either, you know, there needs to be a much lower synthetic response to the same amount of volume or like breakdown increases significantly. And it's likely on the, the synthetic side and i'm not sure there's really any um you know to my knowledge i don't i don't i haven't seen anything to indicate that it occurs on that time scale like anabolic sensitivity changes on a week-to-week basis based off of you know changes in volume yeah. um, and to my knowledge there's also been no research that's compared like a fixed number of you know going from 10 to 20 sets across a block versus 15 across the entire block you know what i mean like that compares the block average versus working mean. up yeah i don't believe I, there's a study yeah. that shows that and i think if there was the differences would be so minute that you wouldn't even notice it yeah um and i, I think yeah so it's like 
it's almost like when you reduce your sets again let's say if you're doing a ton of sets and then you reduce them back um and you've come across this like eight week block or a couple of blocks of training that even if you do go back to what you were doing in terms of the number of sets you're now going to be lifting more weight at that number of sets or doing more reps for the same weight so the stimulus is now higher than exactly. it was eight to six weeks ago or whatever exactly yeah um and one thing you had mentioned uh and th- this is largely theoretical i don't know if this is the case but something interesting so you had said you you think the results would be negligible and you may be right um but if if like what i'm saying mev doesn't increase to a significant degree let's say your maximum adaptive volume hangs out within like the same realm across the entire mesocycle um if that's the case the group or the yeah the group that would be adding sets each week would be spending you know only you know a couple weeks of the block in that maximum adaptive range whereas the other like both sides they would either you know first half of the block be under stimulating below their optimal amount and then the second half of the you know the last third of the block they may be doing more than what's optimal so it's in theory if that's true it's possible the group that's doing um 15 sets all the way through could be getting better progress does that make sense yeah it does and and it it, it kind of makes me question whether it's even a good idea to start people at a, a maximum or a minimum amount of volume well, or, or just kind of throw them in the, in the, I, in the mid range and see I how think they fare. The other thing is I think finding these numbers is somewhat impractical because like, yeah, you, in my opinion, if you're making progress and you're staying healthy, then like that, I wouldn't really increase, you know, especially as an advanced athlete, it's like progress is, you know, how fast can you really expect progress to come anyway? You know? Um, so it's, as an advanced athlete, if you're making progress and you know, you're, you know, adding reps here or there, then that's, and you're staying healthy. That's a pretty damn good place to hang out, you know? Um, so, like, I, th- I think finding these landmarks, like, once you add in all of the acute variables that can influence these, I, I just feel like it's, I don't know, I I think it's less practical um, and knowing where you stand at any given point in the block, like, mm-hmm. that, that can be changed within a day, you know, based off yeah. of stress and sleep and everything so um there's just there's too many moving parts in my opinion for me to um really go beyond just the idea of if you're making progress and staying healthy write it out um and and that's why i think like uh for for the most people that i I work with i just like to simply do some form of auto regulation where they they change it based off of you know how their first set or two went and then that will that will dictate it because even people who 
are professional bodybuilders have normal jobs yeah and have have families and have other stressors that are, are more important than yeah and that's that's a good way to think of it too is you know auto regulating volume on a day-to-day basis like if you could have a system to do that i mean that would make the most sense um but so for, I, I guess the only obstacle there is like if you if you're early in a block and you're not adapted to higher amounts of volume, but you feel ready, like, I mean, that's, you yeah. could risk excess muscle damage in some cases, I think. Yeah. Um, but yeah. What were you going to say? So, so f- for a final elevator pitch in terms of long-term progress, what would you say to somebody, uh, you know, what, wh- you know, what's the key to, to long-term progress? I would say the key to long-term progress is assessing whether or not you're progressing. And if you are and you're staying healthy, then don't feel like you, you need to do more. And it's not necessarily, it's possible that doing more could be suboptimal. Um, you know, I think at some point in a training career, any progress is good progress. Um, and I think, you know, chasing the logbook is, you know, success and overload is not predicated on doing more than what you did the prior session, but more so doing more over time as adaptations occur. Very nicely put. Thank you, Brian, for coming on. Where can we find more about you and your work? Um, you can find me on Instagram at bdminer. Um, and then myojournal.com is my website and you can read some of the articles I've written there, um, as well as the, um, information on coaching. And then I also am fortunate enough to work with JPS, um, health and fitness, um, in Melbourne, Australia, and they have an online, um, trainer and coach mentorship program. Um, and you know, it's myself, um, some James Krieger, actually Dr. Mike, um, you know, they're some of the other contributors to that, um, you know, Jacob Skepis, Lyndon Purcell, um, you know, off the top of my head, but there's, yeah, it's, it's a great, uh, you know, if you're a coach or trainer that's wanting to, um, you know, further their education you know, in multiple areas, you know, both in terms of nutrition program design and the, the business side of things, it's a great resource as well. So. Awesome, man. Well, once again, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks a lot, man. So that was a great episode, at least in my opinion. And thank you so much if you have made it this far. I spoke with Brian quite a bit after we stopped recording, just because I could talk about this topic for such a long period of time but obviously for the sake of a one single episode i want to keep it short enough and i really like the way that brian thinks he kind of thinks outside the box he's a critical thinker he challenges his own beliefs and he really tries to understand the mechanisms of what's driving uh, certain results so if you did enjoy the podcast please do leave a rating or view or subscriber wherever you're listening to this whether it's youtube or any of the platforms please do that because it does help and if you have any questions for myself or brian you can reach either of us in the show notes there should be contact details for both of us and if you want to find out more about brian there's also his social media 
uh, links and his website links etc but thanks again for listening and i will chat to you in another episode